0: It wasn't fair. The mother of Achaicus went to bed hungry again, as did the widow of Alexandros and the elderly woman who we loved named Helen. Jerusalem was a huge city in the first century, and even the Christians who were poor were spread out across a vast metropolis. It was easy to be separated. It was easy to be alone. It was very easy to be overlooked in the big, bad, powerful city. We don't know their actual names, but we know their names were probably Greek. Among those earliest Christians, these were not the privileged class. See, there were two kinds of Jews in Jerusalem— And there were two kinds of Jews in the early Christian church, which was almost completely Jewish at this point, still primarily concentrated in Jerusalem. There were those Jews who were Hebraic, they were Jewish Jews. They weren't just Jews in the fact that their mother was Jewish. They were Jews linguistically. They spoke Aramaic and they spoke some Hebrew. They spent a lot of time at the synagogue. They learned the Hebrew scriptures. They they dressed like Jews. They appropriated aspects of Jewish culture and Jewish tradition. Their homes looked and felt Jewish. If you looked at them, you would not have thought this was somebody in Athens. You would have thought this is a very Jewish Jew. And they were the dominant group. They were the majority. They had all the power. They were all the apostles even. But within 1st century Jerusalem, there was another subset, less loved. They were the Hellenistic Jews. They were the Jews who since the 2nd century B.C., Uh, and the collapse of, 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 uh, or the the breaking apart of, of the empire of Alexander the Great. For centuries, they had been taking on Greek names and Greek clothing and Greek culture and Greek literature. They spoke Greek, maybe a little Hebrew, maybe a little Aramaic, but they spoke Greek. They were Greeks in every way except in their religion. Their religion was Jewish. Their DNA was Jewish. But in every other way, these people were Greek. They were Hellenistic. They had adapted to the broader culture of the surrounding nations. And they were looked down upon as sellouts, as half-breeds, as not really fully Jewish. Those who were ashamed, perhaps, of their Jewish identity and nationhood. And there were many who spoke of the value of the Jewish nation and her identity as a Jewish nation, and wanting to expel those who weren't truly Jews, those who had collaborated, those who were really Greeks at heart. And so, these early Christians, having converts from both sets, both camps of Judaism, predominantly Hebraic Jews, but also some Hellenistic or Greek Jews mixed in, as they were pooling their resources to take care of their poor, a minority people group started complaining. The Greek Jews with their Greek names and their Greek culture and their Greek clothing and their Greek food and their Greek moms and grandmas and widows. Their widows were being overlooked. They were going to bed hungry. They were not receiving the care that all of the other Christian widows were receiving. And the complaint came to the apostles and the apostles had to weigh what to do with it. Another group complaining, why can't you just be happy with what you do have instead of complaining about what you don't? Don't you understand all the benefits that you people get because we allow you into our community? All of the things you could have heard said, and yet something happened that was truly remarkable, unheard of, and impossible in the ancient world apart from a true and divine miracle of God. We're going to read about what happened may not seem like much when you first read it, but when you understand what's going on, it gives us a very different model for power and how it's to operate within the church that Jesus died to create. This is Acts chapter 6. We're going to read the first seven verses. This is the word of the Lord, the history of the early church told by Luke, a, a Gentile physician, a Greek himself, a Greek Greek who traveled later on with the Apostle Paul. This is Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In those days, that's the early days of the church, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian, that is the Greek Jews among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on the tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Trochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Gentile. They presented these men to the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them, and so the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. A minority people group were complaining That they were being overlooked. And what do we see here? But the apostles who had all the power, the apostles are giving up their power. See, they're giving up power over the patronage network. In the first century, if you were a Roman and you saw some community of people with some powerful people at top, and there were money tables in which food or money or support was distributed to those in need, you would have understood what that was. That was a patronage network. A patronage network is the way in which a wealthy Roman, whether a citizen or not, would buy the loyalty, buy the votes, buy the support, buy the protection... Of the poor. Because if you protected them, if you provided for them, then they would be there for you when you needed it. If you needed to raise an army, their sons would show up. If you needed to raise votes for some office, they would buy, their votes were for sale. They were for sale in advance because it was a patronage network. This was Uh, The money tables, you know, when they say it's not right for us to wait tables, don't think they're talking about something lowly. The tables were where the power was. The tables were where the glory was. The money tables, the support tables, the food tables, that's where you got your power and influence and dominance. That's how you became wildly successful. When they're saying, we're going to give that up, what they're giving up is the thing that everybody in the room would have been coveting. The power to decide who gets money and who doesn't. The power to decide who's going to be loyal to whom and whose support you're going to purchase. They had all the power and they handed it over. And they're handing it over to focus on the Word of God. It seems crazy at the time. It seemed insane. It was upside down. It was an inverted pyramid with the apostles taking the bottom point instead of the top. No one would give up that kind of power willingly. That reversal of power dynamic, it ends up causing actually a bigger impact. We, we kind of know that through research today, you know, like uh, uh, um, in his uh, uh, book, The Captain Class, Sam Walker actually examines uh, sports teams. And he looks at the hidden forces that actually make a team successful. And we think what makes a team successful is you have a star athlete who, who scores all the goals. They hit all the home runs. They are the person who, 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 who just dominates. And if you kind of hit your coattails to them, you can be successful as well. But as he examines this, he actually looks at the role of, of the team uh, a captain. And he finds that the team captain is actually the most reliable predictor of whether a team is going to succeed or fail. It's, it's an unglorious task, Lots of, of not, nothing glamorous. It's tough work. It's behind the scenes. They, they're rarely stars. They do all the grunt work. But he gives one example. Uh, in, in 1962, when Brazil won its second consecutive World Cup, its team's unquestioned star was Pele, arguably the greatest soccer player of all time. We've got a slide. Can we get that? That's Pele. He knew how to play football, soccer. Uh, the prevailing view, of course, is that Pele's brilliance expressed by the 77 goals he scored was the team's driving force, but Pele was never made the captain. They were not going to let him be the captain, nor did he lobby for the job. We've got another picture here of the guy who's the real captain. The team's primary leader was Hilderaldo uh, 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 Bellini, uh, a tough, and humble central defender who during a nine-year stint with Brazil never scored a single goal, Bellini was a functionary, not a star. While Pele attended to the pressures of celebrity, Bellini took care of the daily, hourly grunt work of unifying the team and getting them playing together. He cleaned up their mistakes with his fearless defense. He often uh, left the pitch bruised and bloodied, and he calmly urged them forward when their confidence sagged. He never scored a single shot. Walker concludes, The captains on my list in my research were rarely exceptional talents, the leader's job wasn't to dazzle on the field, but to labor in the shadows of the stars, to carry them water to lead from the back. Thank you. See, that's what the apostles are choosing to do. They're giving up power. They're saying, We're not going to be at the tables with all the power and all the influence and all the glory and all the loyalty we can get. We're going to go tell people about Jesus, and we're going to entrust to other people the real power and influence. You see, they're giving up power over the church leadership. You'd expect if they're going to appoint some other people to do it, that they're going to then decide who is actually going to wait the tables. But they even give up power over that. They don't nominate people. They don't select them. They don't appoint them. They turn to their community and say, why don't y'all go and talk amongst yourselves? Come to some consensus and tell us who you want in the position of power and influence." To actually make sure that the widows are taken care of with all the influence that that will actually purchase them. See, they left it to the congregation. They're not just giving up the power of the money table, they're giving up the power to decide who fills that role. They call for nominations and they schedule an election. It's, it's upside down. It's inverting the pyramid. You see, we think of power as, as that power is at the very top, and those people make the big, important decisions. And they then delegate to other people below them who will be loyal to them and will sacrifice for them because, because they're the ones who have the power. And then below that and below that, and eventually at the bottom rung, you get the congregation. And, and what is happening here in these early days of the church is that triangle is flipping over, and the apostles are taking the lowest seat. And they're then delegating the congregation to to identify other people who will also serve within that pyramid. means the leader is the chief servant instead of the boss. See, traditional leadership involves the accumulation and exercise of power, but the apostles here, they share the power. They empower other people. They give it away. You know, this servant leadership... uh, and it it turns it all upside down. It inverts it, and this requires a lot to flip the pyramid. Uh, Instead of the dream to win, the dream to be on top, the dream to be in control, they're giving away power, and that requires what? It requires a capacity for listening to other people because it's all about those other people and not all about you as the leader. It requires empathy. Empathy. It requires an awareness of other people and their needs. It requires a commitment to the growth of other people. It it requires a readiness to invest in building community. What servant leadership is not, don't misunderstand. It's not a refuge for those without the willingness, ability, or courage to lead. It takes boldness to lead from the bottom. It's not an excuse for failing to give direction. It's not an excuse for a lack of accountability. It is never, ever passive. It is not necessarily keeping everyone happy, and servant leadership is not just doing what people want you to do. What it is, is stepping up and taking the lead, taking the initiative, taking responsibility for others, and doing that in a way that takes yourself out of the equation so that you can empower other people. To take myself out of the equation means I can't look at a situation and ask myself what's going to make me feel good at the end. What's going to make me feel successful? What's going to make me look good? I have to be a zero within that equation in order to empower other people for their good because my job is to be their slave and a slave doesn't get his way. A slave doesn't get his needs met. A slave sacrifices and serves for the sake of other people. That's what the apostles are doing in response to these complaints of this minority group. They're not fighting over the crown They're fighting over the towel. And it was unheard of within a Roman city obsessed with personal honor and power. It would have been strange within the power structures of the Roman world. It's inverting the pyramid. So, this inverted pyramid, though, is trickling down, or if you prefer, since it's flipped, this inverted pyramid is trickling up. This power reversal. You know, these newly elected leaders, what are they called? They're not called that in this passage, but we know from elsewhere that more than likely these were the first deacons. Deacon is the Greek word for servant. There were uh, two kinds in the early church from what we know from Scripture. And uh, what we know historically is that certainly in the early centuries of Christianity, in many of the churches of the East, there were deacons and there were deaconesses. And they were separate boards, they were separate ministries. In many churches, they were both ordained in some they were consecrated on one side and ordained on the other, but, but, but both of these groups of ministers, they were servants. They were a friend of the friendless. They were the people who made sure everyone was taken care of. They were the ones who mobilized the congregation to give alms and care and support for the poor. They were the ones who let people know that someone was going to be homeless and they needed a place to stay. They were the, the big heart of Jesus within the early church, mobilizing people to learn to love and to care for one another as the family of God. They were servants. They weren't the boss either, even though they had the tables, even though they had the glory. And then look at who the congregation elected. Because the congregation, it was handed over them. All right, guys, why don't you figure out who you want in this position of power and authority? Because we got this problem. We'll acknowledge it. People are complaining. Their needs are not being met. And so they all huddle together, and they come back to the apostles, and they say, Well, you told us they needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with wisdom, and we prayed, and we sought God in this, and we kind of come to some decisions, and here's our list, and their names. You know, you look at these names. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas. Nicholas was a Gentile who had converted to Judaism. He wasn't even Jewish. There's not a Shaul. There's not a a Yitzhak. None of these are Jewish names. All of them, all seven names are Greek. They, they selected every single one of them from the complaining minority group and gave them all the power of the money and influence and care of the church. I mean, do you understand what this is like? This is like going into an almost all-white church with a big, tall steeple and and Corinthian columns out front in the Mississippi Delta. And you walk in, and it's a whole lot of white women and white men of a certain age, genteel with their hats and their beautiful clothes, all very nice, singing their sweet hymns. And you call them all together, and you say, okay, guys, we need you to pick some deacons who are actually going to really run the church. Uh, You know, we got elders who will do the shepherding. We got pastors who do the preaching. But we need somebody who's actually going to make sure everybody's cared for and run things around here. Could you come up with seven names? Could you just go amongst yourselves? And all the little old white ladies get together and they pray and they come back and they hand you the list. And the list has deacons named Kodak, Cain, Little Wayne, and Nellie. That's what happened. That takes a miracle of God. For a minority people group to be empowered in such a way within the early church, the Hebrews, who were the dominant majority, picked deacons, and one of them was a Gentile, and the other six were Greek. Greek Jews. They're giving up power to make sure everybody's cared for. The majority group going to the bottom of the pyramid and doing it on purpose because they learned it from the deacons and from the apostles. The apostles were giving up power, and that was bubbling up from that apostolic roll at the bottom, bubbling up through the inverted pyramid, so that the people are catching a sense of it. And they're giving up power as well. It turns the whole world upside down. You know, the gospel reverses everything. The way up becomes down. The way to power is through weakness. The way to riches is by giving your money away. And those who had no power end up becoming its leaders. And this is an almost impossible thing to do. You know, what does it cost to hand over power to other people? It requires that you first choose to trust them with a responsibility that you used to have. It's now theirs. It's no longer yours. It means you give up control. When you hand over power, you stop trying to manage them. You stop trying to tell them how to do what's now their job and is no longer your job. You start telling them how it's done, how you used to do it, how we've always done it. You go hands off. I remember once talking to Paul Koistra. He had been the president of Covenant Seminary and then the president of Mission of the World. Uh, He's been president of many seminaries and organizations through the years. And I asked him, about leadership. And what he told me was this. He said his strategy was to find the very best people, give away as much power to them as you possibly can afford to give away, and then get out of their way and let them do their job. You see, that's what it takes to lead from the bottom. Uh, And that's hard to do. It's hard to give up control. It means giving up control of the end product, control of the processes, control of everything, How do you know that the new guy's going to do a good job? How do you know that you'll be taken care of? Imagine what the apostles are thinking. You know, we're at least managing to cover the Hebraic widows. We get a whole bunch of these other guys in. How do we know they're not going to screw it up really, really badly? How do we know they're going to do it right? They don't. You can't know. You have to trust God. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. They have wisdom. They've been elected, installed, and now ordained. You, You hand it over means accepting uncertainty. That's the cost. It's hard to give it up. Think of how power makes you feel. When everybody looks up to you in awe, when people want to be with you or they want to be you, When you can step up and make things happen. When you have influence. When your name becomes a brand that people associate with success. When you can snap your fingers and people jump to attention. When people notice you at restaurants and point and smile. When, when your future is set and you have all these resources and everything is lined up and your kids are now gonna have a really great future and you just give all that up. On purpose. Will I become a nobody? Will I become a zero? What about me if I give it all up as a community? What's it like when a community like these early Christians choose to give up their power over uh, the care ministry of the church? What, what might we lose? Think of these Hebraic Christians thinking of, of their Hebrew culture that is so valuable to them, their Hebrew ways of doing things, and they're handing over the keys to the church, to a whole bunch of people of a different culture, a different set of values, a different set of assumptions about what power looks like and the way that things are done. And the only thing they have in common is that they are Christians. They're handing over power even to a Gentile. What's it like for us to give up our heritage, to sacrifice our heritage on purpose because we know it's what God wants us to do? It's incredibly powerful, incredibly difficult, Hard to give up power. Paul Roberts in his book, The Impulse Society, discusses a series of experiments about the effects that power had on those who who gained it. It was the early 1970s, and a a psychologist by the name of of, uh, David Kipnis wanted to know if power really does corrupt people. And so he did a series of experiments in which subjects assumed either the role of the manager over a group of employees, or they took the other spot. In a sort of a fictitious work situation. And in some cases, Kipnis uh, uh, gave managers very little power. And in other times, he gave them a great deal of power. And he found that when he gave them a whole lot of power, even though it was all faked up and everybody knew it was fake and everybody was actors, when they were given more power, the ability to fire somebody, they became brash. They became harsh. They started issuing ultimatums. They started issuing threats. They would push people around and use their bodies to take up their personal space. And yet, when he gave them very little power, he found that they became very collaborative and very understanding, and they grew in empathy because power, it gets a hold of us. It it takes over us. It it has its influence on us. And once you've got that, it's hard to give it up. In a 2012 study, a researcher named Paul, uh, uh, Paul Piff had subjects play a two-person game of Monopoly in which power was intentionally skewed. One player was given a wad of cash and the use of both dice, and the other player was given half as much money and the use of only one dice, one die. So what happened? You can almost imagine. Within minutes, the subjects with more cash and dice, the high-status players, began acting noticeably different. They hogged space at the table. They made less eye contact. They took more liberties, such as moving the low-status players' game pieces for them. They also made more noise when they moved their own pieces. Everyone knew the game was rigged, and yet within a few minutes, the roles crystallized, and the high-status players started pushing people around and acting like they had real power and status. It's addictive, friends. You can't give it up. Only a miracle can enable you enable you to give it up, it gets inside of you, and once gained, you can't hand it over. You know, think about Jerusalem in the first century. It was still very much a bloody, powerful Roman city with an addiction to honor and strength. Uh, Historian Garrett Fagan writes about, about what it was like in ancient Rome. He says this, he says, Ideals of universal human dignity were almost all but non-existent. Large swaths of the population were seen as inherently worthless. Weak members of society were objects not of compassion but of derision. More than most, Romans lionized strength over weakness, victory over defeat, dominion over obedience. Losers paid a harsh price and got what they deserved, and resistors were to be ruthlessly handled. Roman politics became a ruthless game of total winners and abject losers because the drive to dominate and not be forced to bow before a rival was paramount there is a psychology of hate that is enmeshed with our understanding of power you think of what it means anytime you build your identity on your own power on your own strength uh, it's it's how power works When you build your identity on anything, it ultimately makes you into an incredibly hateful person. You may not realize you're hateful because you'll surround yourself with people who are serving you and serving your interests, but it it has its effect. If you make your identity all about your success in business, then you're going to look down on, scorn, and despise those who are failures in the business world. If you make your identity built upon your own wealth, you're going to look down on the poor and sneer at them, and you're going to judge them instead of loving them and identifying with them and supporting them. If you build your identity on being culturally savvy and sophisticated, you're going to find yourself cracking jokes and insulting people who are culturally unsophisticated and less educated and savvy than yourself. Whatever you build your identity on, whatever your righteousness is, it will dominate and control you. We see that this weekend. In Charlottesville, Virginia, I became a Christian in Charlottesville, Virginia. I was converted there. My first church experience was there. My undergraduate training in architecture was there. And to see pictures of a bunch of white guys in their 30s holding torches and making Nazi salutes before the rotunda that Thomas Jefferson designed, it's not really easy to watch. And yet, while I pray for the victims and I pray for their families, I also pray for the racists, for the white supremacists. Because what they have is, the sa- is just a, a slightly different version of the same disease that I have and the same disease that you have, which is that we build our identity on something other than God. And from that platform, we then start judging and hating other people because they threaten our identity. They threaten our righteousness. You know, you can take the same basic ingredients and you can put them in any kind of pan And depending on what kind of pan they go in and how long you leave the heat on, you're going to get a different kind of loaf. And maybe flour and water and yeast in me, in my little pan, became a croissant. And maybe for them, the flour and the water and the yeast in a different kind of pan became a popover. But it's the same issue. It's the same psychology that drives hate. It's the same psychology that keeps us from loving. It's the same psychology that tells us our group has to be in power. We have to influence from the top down. And here we see a vision that is so counterintuitive. It is the exact opposite. The apostles are saying, no, we're taking the very, very bottom. We're giving up power. We're giving up the money tables. And then the the Hebrew Christians, the Hebraic Jews are saying, we're going to give up power too. We're going to elect a Gentile and a bunch of Greeks and give them all the power. How is it possible? It's so counterintuitive. What are they building their identity on that would make them actually act in love? Where did they learn this? Friends, they learned it from Jesus, the head of the church, the true leader who led, not by barking orders from heaven, by plunging down into the cesspool of this world, entering into our brokenness and our shame and our despair, becoming a human being when he was in the very form of God himself and then dying the most shameful possible death on the cross. Where'd they learn it? But someone gave them a better identity and a better righteousness. We see this in Philippians 2 where this great... Christ, him extolling the basic story that saves us. Where he says, Do nothing out of vain ambition or conceit, but in humility value others above yourselves, looking not to your own interests, but the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, Paul tells the church, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, Did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage, but rather made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. Friends, that's real leadership, even death on a cross. Jesus said to his disciples, as they were arguing and jockeying for position, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be on top? Who gets to make all the important decisions? Who gets to decide how many songs in a row in a worship service we get to do? Jesus said, you know that those who were regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. This isn't describing abuse. It's saying the way Gentiles do it is from the top down by exercising authority over them. It says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, your slave. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. Why? He says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, Jesus gave up power for you by dying for you. That's leadership. When you think of a strong leader, what do you think of? The suit, the briefcase, the shiny shoes, the squadrons of people ready to obey. Probably he's kind of a jerk. Probably he's kind of angry, you know, kind of guy who might slice his enemies in two with a glance of his eyes, but that's a powerful leader. But not for you, Christians. Not for you. Not the world's view of leadership Give up these deeply held cultural values. They'll destroy you if you hold on to them as your identity. Give up winning. Give up success. Give up the anger and give up the control. You have one vision for what a leader looks like. A leader looks like a man who is stripped naked, beaten, stabbed, nailed through his feet, nailed through his hands, hung to die of thirst on a cross, mocked and shamed by his enemies. That's leadership. That's power. That's leadership that will change the world. That's leadership that can change our culture. When our city sees Christians leading like that, being willing to be mocked, willing to be stripped, willing to be shamed, willing to take the lowest rung in order to serve other people and love other people, friends, that is leadership the world will notice. They noticed it then. They noticed it now. Even many of the priests saw this, says, and became followers. Of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's leadership. It's God nailed to a cross, the inverted pyramid, God saving you because God says to the apostles, don't you dare take the lowest point on the pyramid. The lowest point is reserved for me. The Azera of Israel, the helper of the people of God, the servant of all, the servant who suffers in order to serve the apostles. so they can serve the deacons, so they can serve the congregation, so all of you can serve the people outside this place who don't yet know the grace of Jesus. Build your identity on anything else, you'll be filled with hate. But if you build your identity on what God did for you in loving you when you were an enemy, friends, that'll set you free. Imagine a church, if you will, that knows its Savior, a church where no one demands their way, where everyone is trying to create a safe place for people who are different from themselves. A family of God that functions like an extended family where they aren't trying to win over each other or gain power for themselves or advance their own interests. Nobody's trying to control anybody else. Imagine a church, a church that's known for giving away their power to empower those who have none of their own a community that's become cruciform, so melted by the love of Jesus and then molded into the shape of his cross that the cross shapes how we even talk about our opponents, how we manage our conflicts, how we make every decision in our homes, jobs, and church. Friends, when you see that kind of community, then you're seeing the church that Jesus died to create. That's the power of the gospel in the big city, the power to build your identity not on what you do, not on what you succeed, not, not on what you accomplish or what people see in you, but building your identity on the fact that you have been loved and living loved, embraced in the arms of Jesus. The signs on the walls and the words over the radio were always the same. Workers will comply With all rules and regulations, workers will honor the leader. Workers will obey. Asking questions is prohibited. Those who disobey will face burning and torture. This was the life in a total control zone in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Shin Dong-yuk was born in the Kaishan internment camp. That's Shin right there. Commonly known as Camp 14, a North Korean total control zone. It was a prison camp. And because Sheen was born in the prison, he knew no life except the camp. In his mind, the entire world was Camp 14 and Camp 18. Nearly every meal he had eaten up to that point in his life had been the same soupy gruel of cabbage, corn, and salt with occasional wild-caught rats and insects. Workers who worked hard were assigned a spouse as a reward though they had no say in selecting their spouse. Shin's father told Shin that the guards gave him his mother as payment for his skill in operating a metal lathe in the camp's machine shop. Shin lived with his mother until he was 12. He rarely saw his father, who lived somewhere else in the camp and was allowed to visit his mother only a couple times a year. According to Shin, he saw his mother as a competitor for their insufficient food rations. And consequently, he had no bond of affection with his own mom or with his dad or with his brother. The guards told him that he was imprisoned because his parents had committed crimes against the state and that he had to work hard and always obey the guards. Otherwise, he would be punished or executed. And within this world, there were only two kinds of people there were prisoners and there were guards. You were born as one or the other, and you lived your entire life that way. With little knowledge outside the world, Sheen often assumed that the society outside the camp was just the same as it was inside the camp. He knew nothing different until someone told him about it. Every day, Sheen was told what to do. For 23 years, he was always hungry and tired from daily hard labor. The level of psychological control you can imagine was immense. There were beatings, there was torture. Part of Sheen's right middle finger was cut off by his supervisor as punishment for accidentally breaking a sewing machine. Sheen witnessed adult prisoners and children beaten every day and many prisoners dying of starvation, of illness, of torture, of various kinds of work accident- accidents, he He learned to survive by any means. He would eat rats, he would eat frogs, he would eat insects if he could get them. And the best way to succeed was to report your fellow inmates for rewards. See, there was no hope of rescue. The Western news media weren't aware of anybody who had ever escaped from a total control zone and lived to tell about it. Every conversation in the camp was monitored. Sheen's own mother and brother sought to escape. And when they did, Sheen did what he was expected to do. And he reported them to the guards in order to gain a reward. And he watched as his own family was executed. He felt they probably deserved it. They had broken the rules. They were slaves. And they didn't know they were slaves. But something changed one day. While working at a textile factory in the camp, Sheen met a new prisoner... This prisoner was a political prisoner from Pyongyang named Park. And when Park came, he had tales of a different world on the other side of the electric fence. See, Park talked about having years before traveled with the government to East Germany. He talked about living in cities and traveling to China. He had even shaken Kim Jong il's hand. One particular thing Park talked about. Was defined freedom in his mind. It was something he, he, he could only imagine, but as he imagined it, his mouth would water because Park would talk about something called roasted chicken. And outside, in the real world, you could eat roasted chicken. You could eat roasted chicken every day if you had the right connections. You could eat it roasted, you could eat it broiled, and you could eat it until you weren't hungry anymore. And Sheen had never not been hungry. He didn't know what fullness felt like. But he knew that chicken would taste like freedom. And so and Park attempted to escape. On January 2nd of 2005, the pair was assigned to work detail near the camp's electric fence on top of a 1,200-foot mountain ridge in order to collect their firewood they noted the long interval between the guards patrols they would walk by and then they would count and they would find out how many seconds it would be until they would circle by again and they would count and they would see how many seconds it would be and right at the optimum moment they did what they had to do and and sheen you know looked to his friend park and park looked at him and park knew this was going to be risky he had seen the outside world he knew what electricity could do and so understanding the difficulty and his young friend here he he said, I'm going to go first. And he, gram, and he began to climb over the electric fence. And as he touched the electric fence, as both hands gripped it up high at its top, an untold number of volts of electricity coursed through his body. And his friend Park died of heart failure immediately. And Shin was still counting. And he knew what he had to do. It was his only chance of not getting caught. His only chance of not being not being tortured ultimately and executed for trying to escape. And so he grabbed a hold of the body of his friend. He grabbed him by one arm. He grabbed him by the other arm. He shoved his foot down onto his shoulder and he climbed up and over the top of the fence with only minor burn injuries. And he ran and he hid and he took a stolen uniform, military uniform, that he had brought with him. He changed into it and eventually he made it across the river. And into China, having climbed over the lifeless body of his friend who sacrificed himself so that he could escape from the total control zone hell of North Korea. Today, Sheen is a Christian and he understands his freedom was purchased by two men who sacrificed their lives so that through their dead bodies he might escape. One, his friend Park, on the mountain ridge in the total control zone. And the other, Jesus, who gave his life so that by grabbing hold of the body of Jesus, you might gain your freedom. Friends, Jesus entered the internment camp for you. He became a slave. He became a prisoner in order to to gain your escape. And when the judgment for my sins and your sins stood as an electrified fence to keep you caged, Jesus threw his body onto the fence and absorbed the full force of its current, the very wrath of the Father for all your sins and all of mine. And he took all of that power into himself. And friends, if you have Jesus, there is no current left in the fence. And you are free now to cross over to the other side. Through his death, he rescued you, friends. Grab on to Jesus. Lay hold of Him because He's the real servant. He's the real leader. He's the one who died so that you could live. Let's pray. Father, we give You thanks for the death of Your Son.